Open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And we began last week by looking at Luke's uh, introduction to his gospel, his prologue there in the first four verses where Luke uh, begins to establish his authority to write a gospel account of the life and ministry of Christ. He also uh, talked about his competency to write such an account, to write such a a book about the life of Christ. And then he talked about his purpose at the end for writing this book. And his purpose was that he could present a complete and full work of the life and ministry of Christ so that, verse 4 there, we could have certainty concerning the things we've been taught. So that you and I can open the pages of this gospel and have certainty concerning the life and ministry of Jesus. We don't have to wonder about what Christ said, what Christ stood for, who Christ was, what He did. We don't have to guess about those things. We don't have to hope we get them right. We can know a record of reality of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so that transitions into how we start to look and walk through this book, doesn't it? Every passage we come to, we know is written so that we can have certainty concerning Christ, certainty concerning God. And that's really what we come to find here in our passage this morning as we look at the birth of John the Baptist being announced. And we're going to look at, uh, this passage is really held together in verses 5 through verse 25. And so the first event recorded in Luke's Gospel is the sudden appearance of an angel to a priest named Zechariah. And these passages, this chapter, chapter 1 and and all of chapter 2, they're known as the infancy narratives. Because in them, God is announcing the birth of two unique and special boys. And what's so significant about this particular passage is that God is breaking His 400 years of silence that He's held between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's been about 400 years. God hasn't given any kind of word. There hasn't been any prophet. No message to the world, to the nations, to Israel. But all of a sudden, we find a priest doing his normal routine, his normal duties, and all of a sudden there's an angel that stands there next to him and says, I now have a message from God. That's what's so significant about this passage. That's what's so intriguing about what we're going to be looking at here, what we're going to be reading in in the birth of John the Baptist being announced. And um, I think we're going to walk away enriched from this uh, passage of Scripture here. And we need to take this passage in several different turns because really there's two themes that I want to highlight in it. First, there's uh, the theme that that God has providence over the birth of John. He's sovereignly over the whole entire birth of John, just like He was of Jesus. But also, I don't want to skip over or neglect the fact that God is using and sending John the Baptist and the comparison that Luke has in this passage in God's using and sending of Christ. Uh, Luke and the angel give a, a very unique description of John the Baptist that in future weeks we're going to come back and revisit from this passage. But this morning, I want us to focus on the providence of God over the birth of John. And we need to start out by understanding that though we're reading about the announcement of John the Baptist being born, the story is really about God. 
It's all about His work, His plan, His doing. God here in this passage is breaking His silence. He's speaking again to Israel. He's sending a a prophet. God is sending a messenger and the angel. God is performing the miracles. God is providing a voice. One crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. God is doing this. God is doing that. All throughout this passage, what we come to today is a passage of Scripture where we can behold the actions and the character of God. And how He gives such attention to detail. How He is over sovereignly ruling over and orchestrating all events in life. Now though there are two announcements concerning John and Jesus and both of their births, and, and though they are happening in isolation from one another, they have a lot of similarities between the two of them. And both accounts of John the Baptist uh, being born and announced being born and, and the announcement of Jesus being born in both accounts that are announced by the angel Gabriel. He's the one that God sends to give the message to the parents that there's going to be something happen in your life. In both accounts, uh, God performs the miracle of the baby being born. Both accounts, uh, this news and this information is given to an unlikely couple with besetting human circumstances, uh, most notably their age. One is a very old couple, the other is a very young couple. Both couples were bewildered by the announcement of the angel. The names and divine destinies of both sons, John and Jesus, are announced and chosen by God, which is something that's true of us all. Both couples question how this miracle is possible. Both are assured of divine determination and fulfilling the announcements. Both are given signs for confirmation that what the angel spoken to them is true and will happen, and both play no active role in the fulfillment of the announcement except to trust God and wait for God. And so here in the Gospel of Luke, like we talked about last week, we find the most detailed account of the births of John and Jesus. Really, in Luke's Gospel, it makes up some 10% of his whole Gospel. 10% of his Gospel is found in these first two chapters. That's significant. That's a lot of content devoted to two stories. And so it's important to remember here, again, I want to remind you, though we read of the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist, the story is really about God. Centers upon God, hinges upon God, is set forth by God, is determined by God, and is ultimately fulfilled by God. And so we see that as we walk through these several verses here. We're going to see God's active role in this birth and God's character and sovereignty in the birth of John the Baptist as we look at uh, several different points. God's chosen people. In the first few verses, we're going to look at God's chosen time and place, God's chosen message and messenger, God's divine rebuke of Zechariah, and God's promise fulfilled. So before we get into the passage, let's read the passage. Look with me in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. Luke writes, and he says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, 
and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink strong drink or wine, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they wondered at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when He looked on me to take away my reproach among people. The first thing we look at this morning, the first thing we come across is in verses 5-7, through talking about God's sovereignty and providence over this whole account. We look at God's chosen people. Now, it's totally like God, isn't it? That He would choose unlikely people to accomplish His task. And He does that simply to prove that what's going to happen in their lives, what follows this instance, is something only He can take credit for. Something only He can receive the glory for. That's, that's totally like our God to do those kinds of things. We read all about Him doing those things throughout Scripture. And Luke gives us really three good and solid descriptions of the couple that uh, this all centers around here. The first description we find there in verse 5, they are a priestly family. Zechariah being a priest, and Elizabeth being a daughter of Aaron. Now to be a priest, it was a solemn responsibility. It was meant to be distinct. It was meant to be holy. They were meant to be set apart for the service of God. Priests were to represent God to the people and also represent the people to God. Zechariah was one of thousands of priests that served in Israel during this time. Israel had a minimum of 24,000 priests that were able to serve at any given moment. And they were to be at the temple for all the major feasts throughout the year. And they're also to serve in their divisions two weeks out of every year. 
Now, Zechariah married Elizabeth. And the wife of a priest was important. It was important for the reason of the priest remaining holy, the priest remaining distinct, the priest remaining set apart. And so to maintain purity, the wife of a priest, her background was carefully and thoroughly researched. So that, ideally, she would be the daughter of a priest or the daughter of a Levite. Or at the very least, she would have an undisputed Israelite background. Zechariah, to maintain his holiness, his set-apartness, doesn't leave anything to chance. He chooses a wife from the daughters of Aaron. We know Aaron. He was the first priest to serve. God set him apart as a priest. And so he turns to Elizabeth and chooses Elizabeth as his wife. Elizabeth helps maintain Zechariah's holiness, purity, and distinctness. She's a special partner to him. Being raised in the family of the daughters of Aaron, she knows what it's like to be a priest. She knows what it's like to be the wife of a priest, to be the daughter of a priest, to be in the family of a priest. And so what we find here in Zechariah being a priest himself, and in Elizabeth being from the very line of Aaron, what we find is this couple has very established credentials, don't they? They're a couple that's set apart for God. A couple concerned with their purity. A couple that's concerned with their holiness. They were servants of God. Spending their lives in His service. And they are faithful to do so. The second description we see Luke give to this couple, verse 6, is that they are Righteous before God. It's perhaps a more worthy title than that of priest, right? To be called by Scripture, which is to be called by God, righteous, there's really no other higher title for any person, is there? Because that indicates that you please God. You please God in your heart. You please God in your life. You're pleasing God in your actions. And so we find a couple here that is described as Righteous before God. Luke actually in verse 6 records them as blameless in the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And this is so unique because Zechariah and Elizabeth are living in a time when righteousness and holiness and the commands of God are not highly regarded except in name and in form. Simply put, nobody regards the command of God except for outwardly. We know that from the religious leaders. That the true commands of God, the true commands of the Lord have been lost to the legalist mentality of the time. Didn't Jesus spend the majority of His earthly ministry battling against that mindset with the religious leaders of the day? It's not about your external self-righteousness. It's not about your outward appearance. It's not about how you appear to other people. It's a matter of the heart. A matter of the heart. A matter of the heart. That's Jesus' whole message. So Zechariah and Elizabeth are called righteous before the Lord in a time and an age when most care nothing about inward righteousness. People only kept, and I use that word loosely, they only kept the law of the Lord to put on a show of self-righteousness before other people. That's something that still happens today, unfortunately. But here we read of a couple that is actually described in Scripture as blameless in their practices and blameless in their keeping of the law. It doesn't mean that they're perfect. They're not perfect. What it does mean is that they're faithful. They're genuinely and they're sincerely seeking to be 
obedient to the Lord and all their practices and all their endeavors. We have a very, very unique couple. A couple that's valuing holiness, valuing purity, wanting to be set apart for the service of the Lord. A couple that is called righteous, called blameless, sincerely seeking after obedience to the Lord in their life. That's why Luke can describe them as righteous before God. And there's two things I want to point out to you regarding them being righteous before God. First, it means that they received the grace of God. Why do we chalk their righteousness up to grace? It's because we know Romans chapter 3, don't we? Verses 10 and 11. None is righteous. No, not one. We know as believers that every one of us apart from Christ have a dead and sinful heart. And that if there is anything good in us, anything righteous in us, it can only come from God. Therefore, for Zechariah and Elizabeth to be so distinct, so set apart, to be recognized as righteous, blameless people, they have to have the grace of God in their lives. They have to have the favor of God upon them. That's who they are. And it matters not what kind of righteousness Luke is meaning here, whether it be a a righteousness of justification or a righteousness of sanctification. The result is still the same. They are sharing in the grace of God. And so for Luke to describe them as righteous means that he's describing them as having the favor of God. Zechariah and Elizabeth possessed grace when grace was very rare. And this description isn't given to many people It's not seen in many places in Scripture. The second thing I want to point out to you about this couple, and I'm trying to set up here who the people are that we're dealing with. The second thing I want you to understand is this couple was regarded as righteous together. And oh, that married couples pursued righteousness together today. They're not just concerned about their own personal holiness they certainly are they're concerned about the holiness and righteousness of each other they're described as righteous together they are righteous and blameless before the lord in all of their endeavors together both husband and wife walking together blamelessly in the ways of the lord how how significant would it be if people were doing that today truly honoring christ in their marriage by seeking to be holy together before him Truly showing their children and their grandchildren what it means to be one flesh and honoring God. That's what we find here in this couple. They're honoring God in their marriage and setting a godly example before any and all who would see what it means to glorify God in their lives. And so when Luke calls them righteous and blameless before the Lord, he's telling us of the character of the people involved here, right? We have a unique couple care about the things of the Lord, genuinely seeking righteousness, genuinely seeking God and all their practices, spending their whole lives serving the Lord in the temple, serving the people of Israel, doing what they can to honor God. We find here two godly individuals seeking the Lord with all their heart. These two descriptions, that they're a priestly family and that they're Righteous before God. These two descriptions make them seem like they're the typical couple, typical people for God to choose. But it's this last description that Luke gives 
that make them a highly unlikely couple to choose. In fact, you and I would never have chosen Zachariah and Elizabeth for this task. If there was a line of people and we had to choose who was going to give birth to John the Baptist, we would have ignored Zachariah and Elizabeth. That's what makes them God's chosen people. This last description we find in verse 7, they are barren and advanced and aged. They bear the heavy, heavy burden of barrenness. It's that description that makes them stand out. They're physically unable to have children. And we call that a heavy burden because in Jewish society it was such a major deal to have children. You look at Psalm 127, verses 3, 4, and 5. The psalmist says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. That's the mindset of Jewish belief. That if you have children, you're blessed by God. If you don't have children, you're not blessed by God. There are many other Old Testament passages we could look at. Many other stories throughout Scripture that indicate the extreme difficulty on Jewish women who could not have children. We could talk about Sarah and Abraham. We could talk about Rachel and Hannah. All of these women who cried out to God in their distress because they were barren. They couldn't have children. And we do today have some understanding of this, don't we? We're heartbroken when people around us can't bear children. We attempt to share in their burdens with them, to sympathize with them, to understand their plight. Some of you know this pain very well, don't you? Here for Zachariah and Elizabeth, you can identify with them. It, It means they had no one to carry on their family name. They had no one to nurture, no one to raise, no one to love on as they got older. They were going to be alone. And for them, it's something that would have been extremely hard for them to understand because the thinking at the time was that God would bless faithful servants by giving them children. That was the mentality of the society. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're faithful. They've been serving God their whole life. They're so concerned about being distinct for the Lord, set apart for His service, so concerned about sincerely upholding His rules and His laws. Why aren't you giving us children? And then Luke goes further and he mentions their age. He makes it clear their mindset of the time. Not only are they barren, but they're advanced in age. They could expect no change in their situation. Humanly speaking, aren't Zachariah and Elizabeth hopeless in their pursuit of a child? Nothing that's going to change their circumstances. There's no cure. Nothing they can do. Nothing will change their situation. They're past the age of being able to have children biologically. So for everybody around them, they would have been seen as having something wrong with them. They would have been seen as as being under a curse or having... Uh, some kind of sin in their life. Because again, a barren couple in, in this time in first century Israel communicates dishonor and disfavor from God. That's why Elizabeth will cry out at the end of this passage. 
The Lord has taken away my reproach among people. But we know from Luke's description that they weren't enduring disfavor and dishonor from God. They had God's grace upon them, didn't they? Elizabeth being barren and God being pleased to give them this heavy burden, it it tells us a few things about God. Number one, and most importantly, I, I want you to get this extremely clearly because we could spend all morning right here with Zachariah and Elizabeth. We could learn so many valuable lessons from them. I want you to learn this one for sure. Being faithful to God and having God's grace in your life does not mean life is perfect. You can serve God faithfully. You can set yourself apart for God's service. You can be blameless and righteous before God in all your ways. That does not mean life will be perfect. False teaching out there, we all know what it is, says that if you have enough faith, then these sort of things won't happen to you, right? I know somebody in my own family bought into that lie. You give birth to a baby boy. Doctors are saying something's wrong with this baby boy. Runs to her pastor. What do I do? And the pastor says, your issue is you don't have faith. Baby's going to be born that way unless you have enough faith. So That's a false, heretical teaching seeping into all corners of the church like a cancer waiting to ravage anybody that comes in close proximity to it. That is not the teaching of Scripture. The truth of Scripture in Christianity is that belonging to God and being faithful to God does not mean that you have an easy and hurt-free and burden-free life. Rather, it means that you can endure this life with hope, with joy, with peace in the midst of conflict, with love in the face of hate. Does it mean the life will be perfect? And Zechariah and, and Elizabeth, their life is a testimony to this principle, this truth. That you can be righteous and you can be blameless, yet still under a burden of barrenness. But I also want you to understand this about Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're seeking to honor the Lord in their lives and their marriage and all that they do. They're under this burden of barrenness. They have no children. They never had children. Yet they are still serving God. And still seeking to be blameless in His ways. That's a valuable lesson, isn't it? They didn't give up on God. They're not mad or angry with God. They're not neglecting God. They're still pursuing righteousness. Still pursuing holiness. Still pursuing the service of the Lord. So what we learn from Zechariah and Elizabeth here is that difficulty in life does not mean God's disfavor. On the contrary, it provides ample opportunity to see God move mightily in your life. The second thing I want you to know about Zechariah and Elizabeth being under this burden of barrenness is that it shows the sovereignty of God over the birth of John the Baptist. That this is a miracle work of God. Nothing else could produce this except God. That's what we find so intriguing about this couple. They're unable to have children, and yet God chose them to be the biological parents of the forerunner to the Christ. 
Why? To make it absolutely clear without a shadow of a doubt that God is in control. And that what is impossible with man is what? Possible with God. You know, see that glaring at us from the passage. Glaring at us from, from Luke's description of these, these people, this couple. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they play no active role in causing this announcement to be fulfilled other than biologically giving birth to the child. And even then, that is ultimately something that comes from God because they couldn't give birth before. So God is doing something here that only He can get credit for. He deliberately chose an unlikely couple to illustrate His power, His purpose, His will, His plan over the whole birth of John the Baptist and in turn for you and I today over all of our lives. So while others thought Zechariah and Elizabeth had something wrong with them, had done something wrong in the eyes of God, we know that God was actually sovereignly working in their lives not to have children. And not to be, quote, normal in society's eyes. Because one day, they would give birth to the first prophet in 400 years. They would give birth to the last Old Testament era prophet. They would give birth to the forerunner of Christ. They would give birth to, according to Christ, the greatest man who ever lived. And only God would get the glory for it. And only God would have the credit. So here's our life lesson from this couple. Always trust in God. And the plan that He has for us all. We're to follow the example of this couple. You and I, we're to remain faithful to God no matter our life circumstances. Our situations, our hardships, what we endure in this life determines not our faithfulness to God. We are to remain faithful to God. Because we never know what God has planned in this life. We can't search the, the mind, the depths of the mind of God. We can't search the depths of His counsel and know all the ins and outs of this life. We are simply to follow and trust Him. And know that He is a good and loving and perfect Father. And that He's never given us any reason not to trust Him. The reality here is that this is a strong and important message for some of you. Really, it's a strong and important message for all of us, isn't it? If truth were told here, almost every single one of us this morning is going through a very complex situation in life. We've had those cries, haven't we? God, I'm trying to be faithful. God, I'm doing my best. God, I'm working my tail off. God, I'm trying. Where's my reward? Where's my blessing? Where's my answer? Where's my relief? Where's my help? Some of you identify perfectly with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Many of you going through hardships in this life you cannot explain. Have no idea why they're in your life. Why your marriage isn't like you want it to be. Why your job isn't satisfying. 
why your kids are turning away from you, why your grandkids are living lives of rebellion. The list goes on and on and on, doesn't it? What's the lesson we learn from Zechariah and Elizabeth? Trust God. Circumstances, situations, those that, that are hard, those things don't surprise us. We live in a corrupted and fallen world, don't we? A world that is tainted by sin. Those things are going to happen. Those things are going to come. But be reminded of He who is in control. Who chooses unlikely couples. Those things that no man, no woman could ever imagine. Ever anticipate. Ever fathom. He does them out of the goodness of His heart. The pleasure of His, his own mind. His own nature. We can trust Him. Maybe going through a plight now. But God will never let you down. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they, they had no idea what was in store for their lives. Looking on in the next few weeks, we'll see some of the things about Zechariah and Elizabeth's life that are remarkable. They spent decades praying for a child, asking God, bringing their petitions before God, please, please give us a child. And what we see, God answered their prayer long before this event ever happened. He knew what was going to happen in their life. The resounding theme throughout this passage with this couple is trust in God. He's in control. He has a plan. Our God's a mighty God. He's worth trusting. He will bring His will to fruition. Zechariah and Elizabeth prayed and asked for a child. They got a child that they could never fathom, never have imagined. Born to them was the forerunner of the Christ. Who brought them joy and gladness. Not because he was famous. He certainly didn't have fame, certainly didn't have beauty, he wasn't rich. They brought, he brought them joy and gladness because he served the Lord. He was faithful, had the Holy Spirit, had God's grace. God continues to pile on blessing after blessing. Zachariah and Elizabeth. And those Zachariah doubts, what we'll see in a few weeks, you can bank on it, that on his deathbed at the end of his life, he never doubted the sovereignty of God. That God could do anything he desired. No one could convince Zachariah and Elizabeth that God wasn't in control. And a lesson we would do well to learn today. Let me pray. Father, I thank You for this time this morning. I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for being even in control of the service and even in control of the sermon and the message, God. Intending to, intending to go much further into this passage and, and much deeper and, and cover many more verses and yet You stop us where You want us to stop. You pause us where we need to be paused. You, you're over all things and You speak to us how You want to speak to us. So although we only looked at Zachariah and Elizabeth this morning, God, I pray that You would use their example to change our hearts, to convict us, to trust You more. Maybe for some of us it is a conviction in our marriage to be righteous together, to walk blamelessly in Your way together, to have a godly marriage. 
Maybe it's to be set apart for your service, to be holy, to be pure, to, to distance ourselves from the world and the sin in the world. Or maybe it's to trust you in the midst of heartache. That though we've been serving for many years, faithful for many years, life's still hard, life isn't getting easier, and there are things that are still complex, more complex than ever before, we would still trust you, still serve you, still know that you're a good and gracious God. Thank you for your picture, the, the picture of your character in, in dealing with Zachariah and Elizabeth. We know you today because of that. We can know today you are a good, trustworthy God, worthy of all praise because you care for your people. Let that, let that work through us into praise and worship now as we exalt Your name for who You are. It's in Your name we pray. Amen.